uh, Armpit Sparkle Burger Zombie episode title, maybe? That is absolutely what I was about to say, Ken. I swear to God, that was what I was going to say. I still, I'm going for Dirty Bearded yeah. Men in a Room. That, I think, is, uh, that's the title of this episode. I'm still, yeah, that's what my the, vote is cast for. Yeah, except that ZZ Top already used that for an album. We are back for episode 11 of Wrapped in Podcast. We're going to talk about part 11 of Twin Peaks The Return, entitled There's Fire Where You Are Going. Joining us, we have our core Wrapped in Podcast crew. Uh, I feel very close to this because like about 24 hours ago, I was still editing the last episode, uh, but I'm really excited to be uh, recording this episode uh, about a, a really really great show it was a lot of fun sunday night watching this uh episode uh but here we are kyle how are you doing uh, i am drinking a damn fine cup of coffee i am eating a damn good slice of cherry pie and the only horn i have any interest in honking is audrey <laughs> okay all right uh, uh, <laughs> ken how are you doing uh this fine evening? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well uh, for my part, I am drinking mezcal during this recording because tonight, Jr., you remind me of a small Mexican Chihuahua. <laughs> it's like talking to a dog, really. Uh, and Jeff, how are you? Uh, I'm doing good. I was outside playing catch earlier, and I discovered um, a dazed and bloody woman uh, in the bushes, so I, I told my mom. <laughs> That's great. So Jeff actually is going to step directly into the Is that episode. a good segue? Uh, that's the first. That was that was a perfect segue. Uh, although you probably should have your mom call yeah. the police, uh, which we didn't see in this episode. Uh, Miriam is alive. Uh, Miriam, who had previously been attacked by Richard Horn in her trailer, some of us thought she was dead. I saw that she was breathing. What do you What do y'all think about Miriam being alive? Well, you you called it Jr. and and uh, yeah, you're right. Their mom probably should call the police, or failing that, at least write a letter to the sheriff. You know that'll get them there eventually. Uh, to me, this was sign one in this episode that the Robins are returning, and Lynch really did a great job of setting this up by having the ball roll into the road. You've got this scene of wholesome Americana, and and if you were like me, you saw the ball roll into the road, and you just knew Richard Horn was going to come barreling through in his Saturn and run one of these kids down. But it didn't happen. That's right. No, it did. It didn't. You, we, I was worried about that, too, and it just didn't happen. Yeah, I expected the worst. Although, why show us that Miriam is alive if her only hope of rescue is going to get mowed down by the same evil? You know, at least the, there seemed to be a reason to have her there. So that, that gave me some hope. This scene uh, reminded me my kind of uh, extracurricular uh, viewing this week was the new newish documentary, David Lynch, The Art Life, uh, which I think came out earlier this year, late last year, and which it's 
I think almost all filmed in David Lynch's, you know, compound in the Hollywood Hills. And he's the only person interviewed, but he tells the story of his life basically up to, uh, the making of Eraserhead. And one of the early stories he tells, a lot of it is kind of about his sort of, you know, I guess bucolic kind of 1950s suburban upbringing. But he tells this really disturbing, uh, horrific story. I think when he lived in Virginia, he and his brother were outside one sort of night in this nude, dazed, I think, I think bloody or distraught woman just appeared out of the darkness uh, and kind of, I think, started crying uh, in front of Lynch and his brother. And, uh, you know, he'd say, he'd, he said he'd never seen like a, this was the first time he'd seen like a, a nude woman before. Uh, and I kind of, I think I'd heard a version of that story before and reading something about Lynch. And I kind of view that as Lynch's sort of primal scene as an artist, the intrusion of something, you know, this kind of mingling of sexuality and violence, and the intrusion of something sort of inexplicable into this kind of innocent bucolic all American scene. Um, and I think he kind of reenacted that scene, you know, almost exactly in blue velvet when Dorothy Valen shows up, on, uh, I think, Jeffrey Beaumont's lawn. But I sort of saw the same version of that here, this kind of classic Americana scene of, you know, three boys playing catch and this kind of, you know, intrusion by uh, an, an, an adult who's injured here, an injured woman. So, yeah, that was uh, the connection I drew between that documentary and, and this scene. Yeah, Jeff, I saw the same documentary. It's great and highly recommended yeah. to anybody who's a fan of David Lynch. Uh, but, you know, there is another scene that I think maybe even more of Lynch's primal scene, the one where he talks about his friend, his neighbor friend's dad, who came out one night and then he just stopped. He couldn't continue telling yeah, the story. What was that about? I had no idea what that was about. Right before they left Idaho, I think the family left, or 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 or, or I can't remember where it may have been Washington, but there he talked about how the, the one of his friends in the neighborhood, his father was an alcoholic. I think he said, and. Uh, the night before they were moving out of town or, or or nearby, he said that that this this boy's father came out, and then he just stopped. He said, "I can't, I can't yeah. tell you about that." Um, kind kind of like the symbol uh, on Hawk's map, right? We're not going to talk about Judy at all. Yep. No, no. So also going on, we don't know actually if this scene with Miriam crawling out of the woods is at the New Fat Trout trailer park. Uh, but within the new frat trout trailer park, uh, Becky, uh, and Steven live in a trailer there. She's on the phone. She's really upset. She's talking to someone says, you know, I don't have a fucking car. And then she does this scream and I, the scream really reminded me a lot of some of Laura Palmer's most primal screams in the show. Yeah. Um, because it, it was very, you know, demonic almost. She calls Shelly, uh, that would be Becky. Um, and basically says it's Steven. She needs her car. Uh, Shelly, who's really worried, you know, drives over to, to Becky to her at the trailer park. And in the meantime, Becky has retrieved a gun and Shelly puts up, pulls up in her old, uh, what we, we may speculate as a cutlass supreme. And Becky basically says she hates him, grabs the keys and drives off. Shelly is jumps onto the car, I guess, to try to stop her. And Becky, you know, kind of, Swings the car around to hurl her mother from the hood of the car. She drives off. It's uh, it's pretty intense. Yeah, and it's a total T.J. Hooker riding on the hood of the car move. But, yeah. uh it, it gives us the third episode in a row that features the prominent display of, of a woman wearing red heels. So at this point, it's got to be the shoes. 
and you know it's funny I, so she go, she she flies into the into this grassy plane next to one of the trailers off of the car and she kind of stumbles up and Carl Rode you know Carl Rod shows up and you know he's like what the hell and um <laughs> I thought that Shelley left something on the grass like a, a red purse or a red shoe maybe we just don't see her pick it up because what happens is Shelley explains that she needs a ride to uh I assume the double R and Carl <laughs> brings out this like tin whistle. Oh my god. <laughs> which is amazing. Yes. He blows on the whistle. It's, it's it's so cool. He blows on the whistle and then like instantaneously a, a Volkswagen minibus just appears. Just yeah, right. just pulls right like up a video you know? game or something. I mean this is this just exactly. for me is, is further cementing Carl Rod's status as maybe the most badass person of all of Twin Peaks. I mean, think about the level <laughs> Of amazingness you have arrived at in life, if you can just blow a tin whistle in a VW minibus that has like a police radio and it just pulls up, I mean, this is like you know. Yeah, no, he's definitely he's definitely bigger than yeah. than Bad Coop. Bad Coop's got to walk all the way to the farm. Yeah. Where if he didn't have a, he could have just blown a whistle. He would have had a car. He would have been and out. Then, of this whistle also blew. To, uh, uh, this whistle also called to mind to me um, the tube that Major Briggs left. You know, in the chair a few episodes back for Bobby and Hawk and everyone yeah. to find. As well, which you know became a tuning fork, as well as that mysterious resonant hum uh, in the Great Northern. So, Carl Rod, his his uh, summoning whistle, amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Yeah. I, I think that it was just a shoe that uh, that Shelley lost. I think the shoes just went sort of flying everywhere when she flew off the yeah. hood. Just looking back at it now, but did anybody else think this was supposed to play for laughs? Like, there's supposed to be a dark humor element to it. I was so worried about Shelley that I couldn't find it amusing at all. But it is, on the surface of it, sort of antic and hilarious. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously the bit with the whistle. And the <laughs> Certainly the whistle. Is... No, but I meant the flying off the hood of the car bit. I was just like, what a terrible daughter she is being. She has a gun and she could have killed her mother. I've reached that point in old age where I start to sympathize entirely with the parental characters instead of ever the teenagers <laughs> or the children, right? So I was just like, you're a terrible child. Whatever else happens with this thing, you, you should be, you know, disowned from your family. What terrible behavior. Well, she does apologize yeah, for it, yeah. you know, four or five hours later. I know. I was so underwhelmed by that. And this from somebody who loves Amanda Seyfried. This was my favorite new character, Becky, letting me down in this way with her absence of filial piety. Right. So in in the van in in the minibus, uh, Carl's got a a police a police radio uh, and is able to uh, get Shelley's dad on the phone. So we now know that that Bobby is or I'm not Shelley's dad. Shelley's ex-husband right. we assume uh who uh, is is Becky's father from here we get the shot to an interior uh, an apartment complex with this really spooky shot down a staircase that directly references the the Palmer house where so many shots we had of the fan over the staircase we, we now have a downward shot and you know a similar sort of spookiness to it Becky pulls up she comes to the door uh, a, a neighbor emerges to say that uh, Stephen and his paramour have left. Uh, she doesn't say that it's a paramour, but we assume that, and it's later confirmed in the episode. Now, Becky's really mad. She says, fuck you, Stephen, and fires six times into the door, even though apparently he's not there. Kyle uh, amazingly made the connection that the neighbor of uh, uh, Stephen's paramour, 
uh, is Lauren Twos. How, how do you pronounce that? Twees, I think, is how you pronounce it. But yeah, we talked about this uh, way back in episode negative one or episode zero that she was on the cast list. You know, Julie, the cruise director from Love Boat, uh, that I thought, why would you cast her to do anything other than just be noticeable as Lauren Twees? And, and she has this one brief moment of screen time, but there she is. Yeah. And then uh, from down the hall, we, we get the, this idea of something really nightmarish uh, approaching. Um. Yeah, it was it was kind of, you know, this unclear, you know, whose point of view this was. I, I wasn't quite sure it was Becky's. It almost seemed to me like this kind of free-floating evil or this kind of spirit of whatever dread, <laughs> unsettled violence. Right. And it also really reminded me, I, I think one of my jobs on this podcast apparently is to reference Stanley Kubrick every week, but this also reminded me of some of those Kubrick, you know, steady cam shots going up and down the hallways of uh, the Overlook Hotel uh, in The Shining. It reminded me a lot of those shots. And I think, it, you know, it gives you this sense of, you know, the the hotel, you know, as this character itself, you know, in that movie. But that's, it reminded me a lot of that shot. And I couldn't really trace it as Becky's or Steven's, any other characters. It seemed like this outside kind of force. Yeah, no, there's definitely some bad shit flying around in, in Twin Peaks. And here, you know, it's a sort of nondescript apartment building. But yeah, you wondered whose perspective it was. Is it Bob's perspective? Is it some other nefarious spirit's perspective? We just can't tell. Um, so anyway, in the shot of the spirit, there's there, there's a couple on a stairwell. Uh, and it's the couple that just left because it's Stephen and Gersten Hayward. Gersten Hayward being the daughter of Doc Hayward, Donna Hayward's uh, sister, who was seen in the first episode of season two, dressed like a fairy princess, playing the piano. Uh, and she got the highest grades in math and English. She's She was uh, great in that brief scene. Of course, uh, Alicia Witt has appeared in some other things, uh, including Justified and a, a appearance in Dune as Paula Trady's sister. And yeah, so we got to see this scene and, you know... It, what the significance is of Gersten Hayward hooking up with Stephen, we can't really tell, but uh, Stephen really punches above his weight. Yeah, I think I think we all yeah, wanted better yeah. for that character. We wanted better for any character that would be hooking right. up with Stephen, but maybe especially her. Um, so I'm a lawyer, but not a criminal lawyer. Can we talk about what Amanda Seyfried is guilty of here in this scene? Because her dad says, well, if I weren't a cop, then you'd be busted for this. So, uh, she's destroyed property, obviously. She's discharged a firearm within Twin Peaks. And is it attempted murder? She sort of waits to find out that these people are not in the apartment before she shoots up the door. But why would you shoot up the door if you weren't intending to hit the people in it? Is there a, is there mens rea enough for a, an attempt thing? Here? No, no. No, can't, can't. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. For as best I can remember, they, she intended to damage the door to send a message, not to kill okay. anybody. Right. So, right. Yeah, because she she doesn't fire until after she's been told that they aren't there. Now that could be incorrect right. information, but but yeah, she's not intending to harm anyone because she has a reason to believe there's no one in there. Now if it turns out she's wrong, you know, you may have a felony murder type thing where uh, she's doing something felonious, uh, and in the course of that, someone gets killed, even though that wasn't her intention. But as far I think I think she's more in the manslaughter type area than than you know actually trying to murder someone. Yeah. So does recklessness right. get you so, to manslaughter because she's being reckless as to whether or not the information is accurate? It's not a good um, basis to that decide. That is correct. Yeah. Okay. That's All correct. Right. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, possibly there could be an issue if it was, let's say there were noises of people behind the door and somebody told her there's nobody in there. Then, then, right. then you'd still have attempted murder because it wouldn't be reasonable right. uh, for her to assume that right. there's nobody but, there. But otherwise, the recklessness right. gets you to manslaughter on the mens rea front. I mean, assume, ass, right. assuming somebody gets hit, but nobody got hit here. Yeah. Well, yeah. But isn't it an yeah. attempt anyway, though? Yeah, here attempted she just shot up a door. I don't know if you can attempt manslaughter. I think if you get to that point, aren't you... You're in like, you're 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 in like you... third degree murder world instead of second degree well, murder. I think that's, I think that's I state know. by state. Yeah. I think not all jurisdictions have attempted manslaughter. No, that is. Oh, yeah, so, and, and shall we get out the uniform penal code no. or shall we move Please along? let us not. <laughs> okay. Can, can we let Jeff explicate some more poetry for crying out loud? Yeah, it's much Put more interesting. Put your penal code away, Jeff. <laughs> okay. Which is what Stephen needs to do. <laughs> yes. Right. So, so Maggie, our switchboard operator at the Twin Peaks uh, Sheriff's Department, she gets a call from 1601 Timberlake Drive, which is apparently this apartment complex. Uh, and a second call, a third call, she's typing, she's taking the calls on her headset, she's taking the calls on a regular phone. What she says over and over again is, someone's on the way. Someone's on the way. Someone's on the way. You know, I, I, and I, I have to believe that this repetition is intentional. Uh, there's meaning behind it. It's intentionally ambiguous. She doesn't say officer or law enforcement or medical help, just someone. Uh, and I, I think what we're seeing in this episode is someone is on the way. Good people are on the way. Hawk is ready to set out on his journey with Sheriff Truman. Uh, but there are also bad things flying around in the city. Uh, in, in the town of Twin Peaks that are that are coming. And I think that's what this little scene represents. And we go back to Buckhorn. Uh, in, in Buckhorn, we've got Matthew Lillard has led Detective Macklay and Gordon and Albert and Tammy and Diane, which like it's weird that Diane is is around, isn't it? That they're that she's that privy to what's going on. I mean, they said they wanted to keep her close. Uh, but they're basically letting her know everything that, that they know, meaning Gordon and Albert and, I guess, to some extent, Tammy. Yeah, I had the same sense of this. Like, I felt like I hadn't noticed her as much in the last few episodes when she was around. It didn't seem as odd. But her, she really started to, yeah, seem sort of uh, sort of an awkward, strange presence uh, in this episode, especially in this scene, I would agree, J.R. Yeah, and she, she doesn't seem like she uh, packed for an overnight trip, but she's she's clearly changed clothes because she's now wearing red pants. And I think that's significant, as we'll see as we go Well, that forward. could just be the same colorblind person that produced the wrong color vermouth going out for the wardrobe shopping. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So uh, my whole theory is completely <laughs> shot. It's just one one red-green colorblind guy who has no idea what stuff he's buying. <laughs> All right. Well, good night. I'm done. See y'all. Right. So it's the scene. It almost looks like a like a a blown out like post war village that's been rocked by mortar shells or something. It's like almost utterly destroyed. But there's like a a a shanty and some barbed wire, wire, or at least some some chain link fence. And Bill Hastings tells them that you know he this is where he saw Major Briggs uh, about you know twenty feet in there past the hole in the fence, and so. Uh, Gordon and Albert, uh, in the meantime, they, they start to approach the area, but they notice a sort of uh, shadowy figure that sure looks like a woodsman to me, uh, who yeah. who appears and then disappears in between two buildings nearby. They decide to go forward to basically the base that Bill is talking about. Uh, and Gordon sort of steps up 
and you know stuff starts to happen. Um, he starts kind of the, the camera from Albert's perspective shows that Gordon is kind of shaking. The screen is shaking. It's out of focus. As far as we can tell from Diane's perspective, much further away, it doesn't look like anything's going on. But uh, Gordon sees basically like this wormhole open up in the sky that is conspicuously pulling not just, you know, images of the sky and the cloud, but a bunch of little black dots into this sort of black hole thing in the sky. Uh, And we see this, I thought it was kind of like a black disc Mm -hmm. that starts moving forward. And as it moves forward, Gordon puts his hands up in the air, almost like he's wants to catch it. I don't know. I'm just not sure what, what the, what the it also seemed is. to me similar to the same gesture that we've kind of seen the one armed man making, uh, is he's kind of been making his way through right. the black lodge, right. you know, trying to figure, you know, like find his way towards something. That's, that's what it reminded me of. Right. And of course we hear a lot of electricity uh, as, as, as Gordon is doing this. And so finally there's the, the scene, uh, starts to get really weird when there's sort of a like a, a almost like an explosion of flame yeah. around Gordon, and we get this shot of uh, three woodsmen on a staircase, uh, and it's a it's a it's a crazy scene because there are two things that sort of jump out. Uh, one, as Jeff noted, there looks to be kind of like a crudely painted mushroom cloud on the wall uh, on the opposite side of the railing of the staircase. But another thing that appears that uh, our listener Ryan. Usher pointed out to me is at the top of the staircase, and we'll post this somewhere on the SoundCloud or something, probably on our website. There's a shot of the three woodsmen at the top of the staircase, and in between two of the woodsmen, uh, you can see behind them this sort of splash of color. Uh, and folks have put that together, and it looks almost exactly like the floral wallpaper depicted on the picture framed picture slash portal that mrs tremont gave laura in fire walk with me it is pretty cool yeah some trippy business yes absolutely yeah and this is definitely my favorite scene in the episode is this everyone's favorite scene in the episode they pulled this off really really well i thought oh yeah and i also really love how you know most of these kind of you know cosmic metaphysical scenes of weirdness just seem like they're happening in broad daylight in these totally mundane, unremarkable locations. You know, I love that about uh, this season as well as, you know, some of the, um, the, the scenes, similar scenes in, in like in firewalk with me. Yeah. And that's why having it look normal from the vantage point of someone just as far away as Tammy is really effective. The dis- difference between her POV and Albert's just a few feet away is really, really cool because it all gives you this quick little, uh, brain soothing explanation that anybody passing by wouldn't notice anything. They just see some people pulled over, you know, um, which is very cool to me. Well, and it also raises the question of when you see uh, from our perspective as the viewer, some things that look just a little bit off, a, you know, a little bit odd, the, the you know, Mike with his arm raised, if we were closer up, say where Albert is in relation to those events, would we be seeing more than we're seeing from our perspective as the top? Oh, that's really viewer? good. Yeah. I like that. And I also, I also wondered, yeah, if your ability to, you know, see these things, you know, what, what is it that, you know, 
Mike says, and you know, it, it, the, only the gifted and the damned are able to see these things. It made me wonder about that too. You know, if, um, you know, Tammy and I think the, the, the buckhorn detective whose name we can never remember, um, didn't, yeah, didn't, didn't Mac see anything. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Gordon and Albert, you know, with their kind of involvement with, with Blue Rose, uh, seem like they do have access to this. I wondered about that if they're just certain people who are able to see, uh, you know, uh, into the other world and some who aren't. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's drawn out by the fact that Tammy and the, the detective Mac, like, can't seem to see the woodsman, uh, that Gordon and Albert saw and probably Diane saw, though it's not entirely clear. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. So uh, before we leave here, it does look that they find a body. It's the decapitated body of Ruth Davenport. She's got coordinates uh, carved into her arm. Her body really looks almost like a sculpture, not a person, uh, because it's, you know, doesn't really show any sign of real decay, despite the fact right. that it's been out in, in the elements for some time, or it could have been. Although I, I actually think that the body was deposited upon Gordon's, you know, visit to whatever he saw through that wormhole, uh, before Albert grabbed him and pulled him back. And then they found the body. Yeah. That was my theory kind of about this too, is that, you know, I, I wasn't sure I watched, I rewatched the episode today and I wasn't quite sure if you'd, you know, seen it, uh, were able to see the body in any earlier scenes, but I, yeah, my feeling of it was that, it appeared only when kind of Gordon reopened the vortex and it hadn't been lying out there for um, a week. Uh, but another interesting thing kind of about Ruth's body uh, and, you know, this headless body that's kind of posed in a certain way. Um, there is a famous, it's the last work uh, by kind of the Dada surrealist artist, Marcel Duchamp. Uh, he died in 1966 and this work, uh, it was his final work called Etat Donné. Uh, which means basically given in French. Um, and it was uh, displayed at the Philadelphia Museum of Art in 1968. And this is right around the time that David Lynch was a young art student in Philadelphia. And this work, I think Duchamp had been working on basically in secret for 20 years and kind of had this very, you know, kind of explicit directions about how it could be installed and how it would be viewed. It was very secret, you know, kind of uh, sensational thing. But basically what the um, there's a, it's still there at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I saw it there a few years ago, uh, but there's just sort of a wooden door, you know, in this gallery and you can only view the work by going up individually and looking through a peephole. So there's already this kind of creepy voyeuristic element about it. And what it depicts is, um, a nude, uh, female body. The head of the body is sort of obscured. Um, the legs are spread. Um, and then the, uh, body, uh, the nude body, female body is holding this lamp. And in the background, there's this sort of very artificial looking backdrop. There are weeds in the foreground and there's this kind of fake looking waterfall in the back. Um, but I read an essay years ago, kind of about, um, although Lynch, I think claims he never had saw the work. Um, he actually put out a lithograph, uh, five years ago called ED referencing the title of the work. Uh, and it's kind of like a, and again, kind of a transposed version of this, uh, but uh, a number of kind of art critics have talked about how influential this kind of work, you know, of this kind of, you know, voyeurism, uh, sexuality kind of intermingled with violence, uh, this kind of mystery um, uh, involved in kind of just the display of the work and the display of this body, um, how influential they've been um, on Lynch. And I felt like this Ruth Davenport's body here appears in a similar 
kind of albeit transposed uh, position and her body also is headless. Um, so that was um, well, what, what this um, brought to mind. Yeah, it does look like it's been colored almost exactly to match the um, figure in the Duchamp painting. It's, it's really uncanny uh, though right. in the, the one in the show seems even less realistic than the Duchamp painting. Like yeah. it's, it's missing yeah. like yeah. body hair and nipples and things. So yeah, which is exactly is very artificial and, and strange. It means um, given beings, right? Eton Donne given beings. Yeah. Beings I think so. Given? Yeah. Or just given. Yeah. It depends. Yeah. Meanwhile, after uh, Ruth's body's been discovered, uh, a basically a woodsman is fading in and out of a vision, gradually creeping towards the car that Bill Hastings is in with Detective McAuley. Detective McAuley's in the front seat. Uh, Bill Hastings in the back. Diane watches this all unfold and, you know, doesn't do anything. She seems to be able to see what's happening. And yeah. what happens is the woodsman gets into the car and apparently makes Bill Hastings' head explode. Uh, McAuley's caught completely off guard. And uh, Gordon and Albert run up. Gordon uh, observes that he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> One of the all-time great Gordon Cole line readings here. So, oh, and this yeah, whole yeah, sequence for me yeah, was just absolutely. so disturbing and like dread-filled, you know. And I think um, earlier in the right. the sequence, I think after Gordon had got pulled back, they discovered, you know, from the vortex by Albert, and they discovered the body. That Pindarecki music from episode eight, the Threnody, uh for the victims of Hiroshima, yeah. starts playing at this low volume, you know, these kind of high-pitched shrieking noises, and then just uh, oh, the those woodsmen are. are are terrifying me, you know, and uh, uh, just the fact that I wasn't sure how much autonomy they had, you know, in, in terms of doing harm and the fact that we discover that, you know, they can just kind of, it seems like uh, seemingly randomly kill. <laughs> I mean, maybe you would have had to have contact with them, you know, in the same way that Hastings did, but still terrifying. And, and for me, uh, Gordon just saying the incredibly obvious, you know, he's dead uh, was amazing. <laughs> also like say RIP yeah, Hastings the, the, and his search for the zone. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 winking in and out uh with no one looking there was almost a, a Doctor Who weeping angel type thing. I mean it was really really creepy. And, and when uh when Mackley calls for backup and of course Diane delivers the other great line of this scene that there's no backup for this, but he he calls for backup to 20, uh, 2240 Sycamore. And I thought, when I, when I was first watching it on Sunday night, um, that address sounded familiar to me, and I was wondering if that was uh, r- the address of Ruth's apartment building. So I went back and looked it up, and in fact, it's not. That was that was uh, 1349 Arrowhead Road. But then's when I knew, I knew I'd heard Sycamore as a street name before, and then's when it dawned on me, that's the street sign that Jade and Dougie Coop passed when they were leaving the Rancho Rosa subdivision right after he emerged from the electrical socket. So we now have three locations connected in some way to Sycamores where you can find portals to the lodges and similar dimensions. You've got Glastonbury Grove in Twin Peaks, Washington, where there are actual sycamore trees. You've got Rancho Rosa in Las Vegas, Nevada, where there's a street named Sycamore near the house where Dougie Jones and Dale Cooper switched places. And now there's a spot on another street named Sycamore in Buckhorn, South Dakota, where the woodsmen are are uh, appearing and where Gordon Cole looks up into this vortex. So uh, something to consider for for future episodes. Certainly, if we see uh, you know Jerry Horn lean up against a sycamore tree, we got a pretty good idea what's coming next. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, going directly to what's next, it, we're in the Double R Diner where basically Bobby and Shelly are doing a postmortem on on Becky, uh, debriefing her on her incident at the apartment complex. She's not going to go to jail only through the intervention of Bobby. Uh, she's got to pay for the damage. Bobby's going to lend her the money. You know, that that's that's basically what happens until Red shows up, uh, who is, I guess, dating Shelly. Shelly goes outside, kisses him a couple times. She's really happy. She's giggling really like she was when she and Bobby were running around on Leo or shortly, you know, during the short-lived domestic bliss while uh, Leo was incapacitated at where they got to live with each other. And so you, you wonder if, uh, as uh, Bobby looks pretty pained as all this is going on, uh, if this is, you know, some sort of karma, at least on Bobby, but not on Shelley, not yet. There's a, can I go back a second to the Sycamore? Sorry. There's a Sycamore connection yeah, sure. to Arthurian legend too. Um, and uh, I knew I'd seen it somewhere and just doing a quick search. This is from uh, the secret tradition in Arthurian legend. Uh, and it says, a sycamore by a well is a preliminary since Egyptian times to the entry to the mysteries of the gods. Huh. Yeah, Mark Frost does yeah. his homework. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Under the sycamore trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and then you get uh, uh, and the uh, the other thing from that scene that kind of carries over into this one is that uh, when when Albert and Gordon went in, they you know they came out with guns drawn, and there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of firearms going off in this episode. You know, we've got we got uh, uh, Cooper, uh, not Cooper, excuse me, we've got G- Gordon Cole and and Albert brandishing weapons, which I don't think we've ever seen before. We got Becky shooting up the place, and then she's sitting there with her parents being criticized for it, and then gunshots start being fired uh, there at the Double R Diner. So we got we got a lot more. Gun- guns in this episode than we usually see well they're getting money from martini and rossi they're getting money from uh probably comcast for the giant video remote they're product placing frosted flakes crunch or raisin brand crunch what right why raisin not uh, product placement from the nra <laughs> just taking that nra money well they they are product placing american spirit right. cigarettes yeah. too um Lynch just had those on him, gave them to the yeah. actors. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. right. No, I think uh, that's yeah, right. I think I, that's probably that right. Yeah. But you know, it's it's you're 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 on on. There's almost an ATF investigation could almost be made up out of what's going on in the show. <laughs> Before we move into the the gun shot sequence, I would like to point out a little detail yeah. I noticed that if any of you who's gonna, who are going to watch the episode again, when Red runs away from Shelley. It sounds like he has a lot of change, a lot of coins jangling in his pocket as he runs away. Oh. So, check that out. He needs them for his magic tricks. Yeah, he's got to. Exactly. Ha- he's always got to have some extras. Uh, so yeah, so there's some gunshots. Everyone's freaked out. We can't tell. There's appears to be a shot into the 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 diner. Um, Norma, who apparently has a plan for all this, <laughs> instructs her employee to turn off the lights, uh, and Bobby. Uh, goes outside to investigate. I just appreciated how prepared and, and, everyone and, was. You know, Carrod had his tin whistle. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. the lights, yeah. you know, it's just, and right. Bobby was just out on the scene. That's everyone right. was very prepared in this episode for the chaos, violence, and madness that was descending from all quarters. Oh, yeah, totally. It's like the double R is like a mob-fronted business, and they're like prepared for this sort of thing to go down or something. Um, and so, yeah, so so Bobby goes out, and, and there's a, a, a mother angrily yelling at uh, a father or husband figure 
Apparently a gun was left in a box in the back seat and this little kid picked it up and started shooting. Um, and as the mother's screaming, Bobby approaches and uh, wisely gets the gun away from the uh, upset mother. In the meantime, there's just so much traffic and honking. And, and it's really it's really difficult for all of us, right? Because how hard would it have been to be like, hey, lady, back up and go around? You know, it's not like they needed right. to stop her and question her. Uh, but in, yeah, so ultimately we, we get, uh, deputy Jesse, who is the biggest goober in the world, uh, show up and say that he heard shots at, at a big Ed's gas farm and and Bobby's just kind of looking at him (laughs) like, what what are you talking about? Then he turns over the process of getting statements from the, the family whose son shot up the, the diner and he goes over to this, this woman who's been honking on the horn. And I want to talk about that is, is, but before, before, because there's a lot going on in that scene. I was freaked out by just the, the stance and that, that, that little dead eyed kid who shot the gun off, you know, like, uh, I thought that was probably gonna be the, the scariest thing in this scene, but I had no idea it was about what was coming my way. Uh, because yeah, yeah. the stakes just kept getting raised. <laughs> but for me, I kind of, I felt like, you know, that, that kid almost defiantly looking at, at Bobby, just like, yeah, I shot the gun. What are you going to do about it? You know, and like he didn't care. And he just well, seemed, right, yeah. And, right. he, and it just seemed, and then they, they sort of showed his father and the stance and the way they both looked, you know, it, almost identical. And I got this sense of kind of, you know, almost dumb, unthinking, violent behavior getting passed down from father to son here. Just as to some extent, similar kind of behavior uh, seems like it's being passed down from kind of Shelly to Becky uh, in the conversation we just kind of seen. And uh, so we've been keep picking up on this theme of intergenerational decay. And I kind of saw it uh, here as well. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point that Becky, you know, has all the signs of being in a really bad relationship. And in fact, is married to a really yeah. bad guy, just as Shelley was married to a really bad guy. Yeah, you'd really expect Shelley to say, I've lived through this. I know the signs of abuse. I found right. your father instead of right. being in the situation. Please let me save you from this situation. Right. Right. Or at least find somebody to incapacitate Stephen right. uh, like, like and, and live off that his disability. Too. Right. Like Red. Exactly. Yeah, but as we noted, you know, Leo, uh, awful abuser, Stephen, awful abuser, Leo, able to take hold down a couple yeah. jobs. Right. So, yeah, it, it's it, it's bad news. Um, any Anything else before we move on to, to this, this lady in her car? I just, I'm sorry, I just wanted to say that uh, I think we're finally seeing the badass Bobby Briggs that his father predicted that he would become. I mean, you know, he, he was he was John Cougar fighting authority, and, and now he's the authority who's always winning. I mean, he's calm, he's cool, he's collected, he's professional, he reacts proportionally, he makes good decisions. He's the only competent male employee hired by the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department in the last 25 years. Which I still hate and don't understand. That's true. I still think you, you shoot a cop, you don't get to be a cop. Doesn't seems like that should be a rule. But it was a bad cop. <laughs> yeah, it was a very a bad, bad cop. cop. It was like a, it was like cop at like one of the the worst, probably the the in terms of law enforcement personnel. Uh, nobody has ever looked worse than the Deer Meadow Police right. in Firewall. Yeah, with me. but. Call me reactionary. I think this should be rule, not standard based. I think we should really have a bright line rule. You kill a cop, you don't get to be a cop. It's- All right. So Ken, Ken is full blue lives matter. That's not what I said. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're, he's, 
Yeah, and Ken's here. Ken's imposing the strict liability. He's asking about mens rea. He's asking about the difference between recklessness and intent. And here, strict liability. Nope, you kill a cop, that's Ken- it. You're done. No, it was a bad cop. Bob- no, Bobby did a good no, thing. God. That's right. The, the moral <laughs> relativism on this podcast is disgusting. It's not relative. He shot a bad guy. You can do that. You don't right. shoot a good guy. You shoot a bad guy. This is this is very simple. She, if Becky shoots Stephen, nobody's complaining about that. In a nation of bad laws, guy. you shoot we live up in a nation of laws. No, I mean actually, though the guidepost is whether or not Laura thinks it's funny. <laughs> she thought it was really funny. Yeah, she really <laughs> as long, did. As long as whatever whatever crime it is you're supposedly accused of, if Laura thinks it's funny, Bobby, you're because the kid Laura is the one. Laura is the one. Laura is the one. I don't know. Somehow yeah. I, I can get down That's with like Walter White. That's your I'm law okay right with Walter there. White as my protagonist, but not Bobby Briggs. I have issues. I don't know. <laughs> yes, I think you are getting more reactionary as you get older. It's not, not my point. Um, All I was going to say before you get to the vomiting kid, <laughs> JR, uh, is that this yeah, whole yeah. scene called to mind again in the same way that the scene where Richard Horn, you know, uh, hit, hit the, the child in episode six. That scene in Fire Walk with me at the railroad crossing, same intense kind of horn honking, stress kind of escalating, this sense of kind of madness. Right. Uh, it reminded me of of that scene uh, again, in which you know Mike is is yelling at Laura and Leland and, and trying to uh, you know showing the ring uh, off to them. So yeah, it it reminded me a lot of uh, that scene. That's exactly right. Which is it, why. It's why Bobby handled this correctly, though, because, yeah, you were talking about he could tell her, hey, quit honking, lady, go around. When people go out of turn at intersections in Twin Peaks, bad stuff happens. That's true. Stay in your lane. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and you know, Jeff, I made the same association, and, you know, that scene really dealt with so many of the central mysteries For of real. the show. Uh, in yeah. Fire Walk with me, and so I wanted I wanted to pay really close attention to what this lady said, uh, and so uh, I, I I wrote it all down, and you know she's she she's really uh, I won't say she's hysterical, but she's apoplectic. She's really upset, and she uh, she she says to to Bobby after Bobby comes around and she rolls down her window, "What are you doing? We're trying to get home. We're already late. We're late for dinner. It's already past six thirty. I saw that gun go shooting out the window. And then she says in a hushed tone, her uncle is joining us. She hasn't seen him in a very long time. We're late. We've got miles to go. Please, we have to get home. She's sick. And so after she says she's sick, like rises up from the chair, the the seat next to her and the passenger is this like, it looks like a a young kind of preteen, probably a girl, maybe a boy. Sick girl. It's a girl. It's, it's a girl. In the okay. Yeah, it's a, girl. a sick girl. So it's, sick it's girl. like, yeah. It, I thought it's like an outtake from like Stranger Things. Like she, it's she's like it's a zombie looking creature that's sort of like gagging up some sort of sick green stuff. It's really really nasty. But you know, I, leaving aside the zombie, I wanted to try to understand what she's saying. You know, and the, the fact that there's this reference to dinner made me think about Dirty Coop's text to Diane. Which we, you know, we don't. Nobody's explained that or talked about it so far. The idea and the idea that there's a person joining us who has we haven't seen in a long time. Well, obviously that calls to mind Agent Cooper. You know, and this general idea that there are people who are late who have an appointment, and we have, we've got a lot of defined appointments coming up. Right, we've got you know the specific appointment that Hawk and Sheriff Truman have to 
uh, go to the, the coordinates identified in Major Briggs' message. Uh, we know that th- there's something going on with Jennings. We, we've already seen Hastings' uh, coordinates uh, and, and now new coordinates uh, on Ruth's body. Um, some new appointment coming. There, there's a lot of anticipation in this episode. And I think we're going to see that play out over the next couple of episodes. And then I started thinking about uncles. Like, in terms of people that we know about in the show, there aren't that many uncles. Generally, Jerry Horn is the you know uncle par excellence in uh, Twin Peaks. He is the uncle of Audrey Horn. He's the uncle of Johnny Horn. He's the technical uncle of Donna Hayward. He may even be the 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 uncle of Gersten Hayward because we don't know how long Ben's affair with Mrs. Hayward lasted. In, additionally, Johnny Horn is Richard Horn's uncle. I don't know that this that they're talking about Jerry here, but uh, the other significant uncle in the show, probably the most significantly referenced uncle, is Ed Hurley, uh, who, of course, is James Hurley's uncle. And Deputy Goober had just told us that he was at Big Ed's gas farm uh, when he heard the shots. Uh, and then, of course, Another significant uncle in the show is Leland Palmer, who was the uncle to Maddie Ferguson. Uh, so I, I do think that the, the, the uncle reference here was significant. And, and the, the other thing that I picked up on from, from this little oration by this letter, the Robert Frost poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, um, you know, that ends, obviously, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Uh, and, and hopefully Dale Cooper is going to be showing up soon to, to keep some promises that were made. And, and hopefully that's going to happen on this side of the, of the red curtains before too much longer i think there's a desert bob frog bug in that kid yeah i tried to look up uh whether warren frost and mark frost are related to robert frost in any distant way but it doesn't appear that they are it's a bummer Hmm. ah that's unfortunate yeah i was just first off kudos to david lynch for still finding ways to freak me out unexpectedly (laughs) after all of these years thought yeah. i'd seen it all at this yeah, point absolutely. in the woodsman and this i mean you know you don't see this girl there you don't even know if anyone is there and then she just right. rises up and starts slowly vomiting out this green thin vomit and you guys in your focus on you know what the woman said you didn't mention just you know this apparently is her i don't know daughter grandchild and she's just freaking out you know, like, like, like horrified by what's going on. Like, like her daughter's been possessed or something like that. That, that was the thing that really rattled me. Um, but I, I was just going to say, I, t- I, I don't think this, this zombie kid, uh, will reappear later. I don't think the uncle is of any significance. I kind of took this whole scene to be kind of further evidence of this kind of sickness, corruption, free, free floating evil that seems to be appearing more and more. Um, in Twin Peaks, um, I also speculated that this zombie girl might have eaten a, a burger uh, that had some 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 uh, armpit uh, sparkle in it from uh, the girl we saw at the end of oh. episode nine, oh. um, and, and, oh as well as some sort Whoa. of comment on kind of entitlement <sighs> and narcissism, uh, which 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 seems like it, it comes up later um, in this episode uh, as well. But yeah, I, I didn't think that had any significance. I don't know if we'll see this again. Uh, but yeah, it just seemed to me like a, a zombie movie style evil corruption uh, in, 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 in Twin Peaks. It's infiltrated the town. Okay. So uh, from the zombie girl, we go to the uh, sheriff's department where Sheriff Truman is looking for Jackrabbit's Palace, apparently on Google Maps, uh, has noted that there's no road to where they're going. And Hawk uh, un- 
unrolls a map that is both very old but always current, um, a kind of special map. Uh, and he points out that Major Briggs Station was on Blue Pine Mountain, uh, the right-hand peak in Twin Peaks, a very revered and sacred site. Yeah, I. Uh, this reminded me, uh, as so many things do, of the secret history of Twin Peaks. Uh, and I kind of went back uh, to find similar references to similar sites. And two of the kind of interesting things I came up with, um, you know, the book starts with uh, talking about the Lewis and Clark expedition, as well as of Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce. And both uh, in the, both those sequences, it seems like a similar kind of site is mentioned. Um, William Clark of Lewis and Clark receives a map of uh, it shows two, I guess, waterfall wa- waterfalls between two mountains. He gets this from Chief Twisted Hair, and he has some sort of encounter uh, with a spirit there. Perhaps he went to one of the lodges, and he writes in a letter to his secret patron, Thomas Jefferson, about lights from the sky, the silvery sphere, music like some heavenly choir. This part I thought was really significant uh, for what Hawk's talking about, fire that burns but does not consume, colors unseen or imagined, and later he talks about the mysterious force that B. Franklin had stumbled upon, electricity, which Hawk also mentions. Uh, and then Clark, apparently after this experience, destroyed his native map, but Hawk uh, didn't, uh, obviously kept his. And then in the next kind of sequence in the secret history, Chief Joseph of the Nez Pierce goes to what he calls the place of smoke by the Great Falls and Twin Mountains to seek the aid of the great spirit chief. Uh, in this time of need. And this specific mountain that Truman mentions here, Blue Pine Mountain, uh, he mentions it here too, but later in uh, The Secret History, it's also identified as a state of Major Briggs' listening post alpha. Um, so that was kind of most of, I think, what I had to say about uh, the sequence. Yeah, yeah. So um, the map is also pointing to stars uh, that apparently uh, point to the same date that Major Briggs gave. And, you know, he talks about the map with the corn representing black, diseased, unnatural death, oily garmenbosia would be the implication. Uh, And fire represents this uh, symbol, something like modern day electricity that can be used for good or bad. Uh, And then when the fire is connected with the the black corn, you end up with black fire, uh, which is bad news. And of course, the the symbol that's on that playing card uh, appears and uh, Frank Truman asks Hawk about that. And Hawk says, Frank, you don't ever want to know about that. Yeah, this is, this is uh, yeah, Philip Jeffries. He's not going to talk about Judy. Um, I, I think the fact that he's tying the fire to the electricity is, is first of all, brilliant. And I think it's huge because it, it, you've got uh, this indication that electricity as the modern analog to fire can come from either lodge. It can either be a good thing or a bad thing. And uh, to give credit here to my wife, Susan, when we were watching the show uh, and, and they showed the little owl symbol, the playing card map symbol, uh, to her, it looked like the Desert Bob frog bug, you know, having seen it uh, in the wake of, of episode eight. And, and I think she's right. And, and honestly, in my head, because of what Hawk said, in my head, 1956 girl is now Judy. I have nothing to back that up. But I, I do think that she's right that the, the little owl symbol that we see on the playing card and now see on the map uh, is the same thing as that, that bug, whatever it was that, uh, that we saw crawl into the girl's mouth. Or it could be the, it could be experiment. 
Yeah. Yeah, I sure. thought it was experiment or experiment mother. I just think it looks more like the bug. Yeah. Jeff, did you still want to make your point about alchemy? Okay. Um, so this bit about the black fire seemed it rung some vague bell in my head. So I did some research and in alchemy, you know, which isn't really about transforming matter into gold, but you know, that's the exoteric meaning. I guess the esoteric meaning is often about the process of spiritual transformation. One of the first steps towards acquiring the philosopher's stone, which you can kind of read as enlightenment here, if you don't want to read it as gold, um, is called uh, negredo or blackness. And it's associated with kind of putrefaction decomposition. Similar, I guess, to the kind of idea of the dark night of the soul and is about sort of facing down the shadow within. This should, I think, sound familiar based on Twin Peaks mythology. Um, but a symbol that's often associated with this stage is a black sun. Uh, and that kind of represents the matter of the body uh, being burnt down, purified. It later becomes other colors, rainbow colored, yellow, sometimes red, sometimes white. Um, black sun isn't quite the same thing as black fire, but it that's what I guess reminded me of this. Um, and I was also reminded of what Hawk said about a spirit having to pass through the Black Lodge on its way to uh, perfection. Uh, and then some other kind of interesting icons or symbols that are associated with this kind of stage uh, of, you know, the stage of uh, Negredo. There's Saturn. I discussed that last week. Uh, and there's also decapitation, which I thought was really interesting because of all the decapitated bodies in this sequence. That's because it's about the death of kind of the chaos and doubt that's associated with material ex existence and this kind of cleansing of impurities. Uh, William Butler Yates, who was, um, I'm surprised, didn't show up in the secret history of Twin Peaks. He was so involved with this kind of stuff. But he he wrote right. about this alchemical stage and gave a good description here uh, to struggle again with the shadow, as with some older knight. Um, and so that was, you know, um, I thought, you know, perhaps a far-flung connection, but one that, uh, especially because of Saturn, decapitation, black sun, black fire, um, and it seems like one of those things that that Mark Frost, who's deeply uh, <laughs> uh, versed in all these types of things, uh, might have uh, in mind. That's all. I'm Jeff's, uh, Jeff's alchemical corner. That's right. Uh, <laughs> her her alchemo alchemical alcove. Yeah, that's good. Right? Oh. Hawk gets a call from Margaret the log lady. And she has, tr after she's connected by Lucy to Hawk, she has trouble hearing or, uh, you know, she said that she couldn't hear Hawk at the beginning of the call. Um, but then eventually she does. And she says, you found something, didn't you? Hawk can't tell her what it is. She says, my log is afraid of fire. There's fire where you're going. That's the title of this episode. Then, the door knocks and it's Deputy Jesse who wants to show Sheriff Truman his new car because <laughs> he's a huge <laughs> goober. Still better than fucking Chad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. Jeff, you noted that, that Jesse just represents more entitlement, more self-involvement, more narcissism. Yes. Uh, yeah, for sure. So we, we shift back to Buckhorn to Mackley's office where Gordon his hand is shaking. Albert sort of suggests that coffee wouldn't be the best thing for it. But, of course, Gordon doesn't understand that and just wants more coffee. <laughs> um, Jeff, you said er, that it's his left hand that was shaking. I, I think that's correct. I yeah. think it's the and, right and, yeah, hand, actually. I, I'm, I'm watching it oh, now, it? and I think it's the right. Okay. 
Oh, is it the right hand? Okay. So we, yeah, I made the same association about like nerve damage, shaking arms, numb arms. We've seen with Teresa Banks and Dougie Jones and, uh, uh, all those people, including I think Pete Martell and other people, just kind of random people oh, in the yeah. double R in the season two finale. We saw that same kind of uh, thing. So sometimes, yeah, it seems like almost like a, a you know, I don't want to say premonition. That's a different thing, but just like the sign that some significant thing's going to happen. You know, it's or, or you, right. you've come yeah, into yeah. contact like was- with a lodge in some way. But yeah, that's what uh, I don't think it bodes well for Gordon. Unfortunately, I'm kind of worried about him because of this. Yeah, right. It, yeah, I, I'm worried yeah. about him too. Yeah, well, it is know, the right hand. He snatches it with the left to stop it from moving. He Gordon did say early on when when he and Albert stepped out into the parking lot and the the blue scene, the blue rose scene, um, you know, and and Albert moves his feet on the uh, uh, on the pavement and and Gordon says, oh, you know, my my hearing aid turned all the way up. It's like a knife in my brain, and and that that has stuck with me uh, the deeper we've gotten into this. Uh, it's why I noted that Gordon had his gun out that you know he's expecting trouble he's expecting danger and I, I frankly i don't i don't think gordon's living to see the end of this I, I i think i think gordon's doomed yeah unfortunately i think you may be right so they're going over the photo that albert took of the coordinates inscribed on ruth's arm uh, some of them are smudged and and diane is very interested and she quite stealthily starts mouthing the coordinates as she reads them uh which you know <laughs> Not very slick, Diane. It's weird. It's encryption. It's, well, yeah, maybe, right? I mean, it's it's weird because if Diane is really a spy, if she's really working for uh, <coughs> for Bad Coop, she put down an amazing performance uh, at the prison, right? At the Yankton prison. But now she's not, you know, being very uh, careful or stealthy about concealing what she's trying to do because Albert sees her trying to read those coordinates. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I see it the way you do, JR. I, I think, I mean, Albert very clearly sees her. Uh, Albert and Gordon have already had a conversation about keeping her close and about uh, about Gordon, you know, not trusting her. And so I, I think I think that he made this photograph. Um, I don't know if he doctored the photograph or if if they wrote it down and they changed it on on their arm before he made the picture. But I don't believe that the numbers on this photograph that they're letting Diane see are the actual numbers uh, that appear on on Ruth's arm. I I, I think they're deliberately feeding her bad information, uh, expecting her to pass it on to Doppelcooper. But again, getting back to the the clothing that she's wearing, we see here she's wearing a green sweater, she's wearing red pants, she's wearing red and yellow bracelets, and she pulls out a yellow pack of cigarettes. I thought that was weird because I you know I probably haven't had a cigarette since uh, Jr. The last time you and I were groomsmen together in a wedding, which has been a few years so uh i didn't i didn't know about the fancy schmancy uh uh yellow cigarettes that uh, apparently david lynch smokes but in any case there's a lot of green a lot of yellow a lot of red there uh we saw that some last week of of it bringing things back into balance and and to me seeing that on diane uh says to me that she's She's not what we think she is in either direction. She's not all good guy. She's not all bad guy. I don't know what Diane's doing, but uh, anybody who wants to put her on the side of the angels or on the side of the devils, I think is going to be proven wrong either way. Right. So Mackley arrives with coffee and donuts, the policeman's dream. 
which I think Coop made the same reference in the pilot that Gordon does here. They discuss whether or not anybody found Major Briggs' head. Nobody's found it. They're still looking for it. And then they discuss the shadow man, the, the, what we assume is a woodsman that we'd seen creeping around. Albert saw it. Tammy didn't see it because she probably doesn't have the gift of sight. Um, then, then Gordon remembers the dirty bearded men in a room that he saw. Uh, and then uh, Diane says that she might have seen uh, a dirty bearded figure come out of the car after <laughs> Hastings' head was blown up, but she's not sure. Which I don't know how you could be uncertain about that. I, either you did, see, either you did see the dirty bearded man come out of the car, or you did not. They're malevolent, otherworldly entities. Come on, wasn't quite sure you saw. They're flashing yeah. in and out of existence. That's true, but it but it does further add to Diane's kind of weird ambiguity and everything she basically is saying and doing these days. So, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 that's right. That's right. So we shift from here back to the lucky seven insurance building. Bushnell calls in Dougie. Uh, he, Phil sort of dra- he, he, he lures Dougie into the office by holding coffee in front of him. Dougie just walks <laughs> forward towards the coffee, <laughs> which is great. Uh, and, and then when he gets in there, Bushnell tells Dougie that he's, his investigation, his scribblings on those files have exposed a ring of organized crime, possible police corruption flowing through the insurance company. But then he reveals that the Mitchum brothers are not part of the conspiracy, uh, that Dougie figured out that the casino file was not arson but a legitimate file. And now um, Bushnell explains that Dougie is going to meet with the Mitchum brothers and give them their $30 million check for their claim that it turns out is absolutely valid. And Bushnell explains to Dougie that the $30 million loss is not a problem at all, where it would be a problem for a lot of firms, because he took out secondary insurance. Basically, what happened is Bushnell had side action on this claim. And I was I really, really appreciated the scene, because at the very beginning of the season, I was like utterly shocked that... The, Bush, the default assumption at that conference table from Bushnell was that the Mitch, that was that the Mitchum claim was not an arson situation. That he assumed that it was valid, and then we had Tony saying, "No, well, we think it was arson." And Bushnell immediately wanted to contradict Tony and say, "Well, how could it be arson? It was cleared." Like I said before, the the imperatives of profit for an insurance company demand that they're going to try to avoid paying claims, especially one that it turns out we now find out was so big. But now it all makes complete sense. Bushnell was only interested in seeing that this claim be paid because he has essentially taken out a bet uh, through a second insurance policy, a secondary insurance policy or over-insurance policy that will allow him not just to be compensated for the $30 million claim, but to get paid extra on it because it turned out that, in fact, it wasn't arson. It was a valid claim. So, I mean, this is great. Uh, it, it all fits together nicely, and and I love it even more because it turns out I love the Mitchum brothers and I want to see them succeed in everything they do. The only thing that's unclear now that this is all pieced together is what was Tony's motivation in trying to show that it was fraud, that it had been arson. Maybe he's got a particular interest in injuring the Mitchums. More likely, it's because he's got an association with uh, the the Mitchum brothers who who are, what are they? My my most uh, uh, my fiercest business enemies and rivals. Uh, 
and 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 that that Tony is essentially just working for the benefit of of Duncan Todd. But you know that now that that's pieced together, I really really appreciated that. Th- but anyway, you thought they had old Bushnell <laughs> on the ropes, Jr. <laughs> oh, he was never on the ropes, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think Mullins, I think Mullins is up to no good. He orchestrated the whole thing. He's handing Dougie over to the Mitchum brothers because he thinks Dougie has found him out. And I, I think, I think he's just a bad. Oh, I totally, I, so, I totally yeah. disagree. I, I like Bushnell more and more, and I, I, I also liked his half push, those little push ups he was doing on his desk. That was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't say, I didn't say I disliked him. I just said he was evil. I think if Bobby Briggs shoots him, he gets to stay on the police force. That's Listen, all I'm saying. I, I feel strongly that Lara Flynn Boyle is is a better Donna Hayward and that Evan Williams is better whiskey than Jack Daniels, but I don't I don't have a strong feeling about Bushnell Mullins one way or the other. So I will not I will not weigh in on your blood feud here. <laughs> Uh, I do think the scene <laughs> because uh, because <laughs> because like Bushnell Mullins blood feud could that be yeah, a title of the episode? Sh- sure, uh, just because uh, I love the Mitchum brothers like you all have. I came around to loving them later, but it feels a little bit like this scene and this episode are Lynch and Frost falling in love with them. Right, that as they were developing this, they really really liked what Belushi brought, and so they expanded their role and decided they weren't part of the criminal conspiracy after all, so they could celebrate and have champagne and. <laughs> Make that amazing face. (laughs) (laughs) I buy that. I totally buy that. Yeah. Yeah. So we we disagree about whether we all agree Bushnell's savvy. We just disagree as to how malevolent he is and whether or not he's setting up Dougie. I don't think he was trying to set up Dougie. I think he assumed the Mitchum brothers would be happy to get their $30 million check as they did. And Bushnell, you know, although he does note that there have been a couple attempts on his life and maybe, maybe there's some merit to your theory, Kyle. Uh, anyway, we're at the Mitchum Brothers. It's uh, breakfast time at 2 p.m. Uh, <laughs> in their house. Uh, Rodney's eating cereal. He's reading the paper. I can, Candy pours coffee. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I continue to be fascinated by their domestic situation. Yes, Especially exactly. the robes. The robes are fantastic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I, but let's be honest. If you were a you know, casino gangster kingpin, why would you not wear robes like that all the time at your house? It's true. They're... They're very close, yeah. these brothers, though. Would One you of them live gets with your brother when you're right. in your 40s or 50s? Or, yeah. Right. And Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, why does why does Rodney need to find out from Candy that Brad has just come out of the bathroom? Exactly. It's, it's, like, it's a lot of information. And also, what an odd portfolio Candy and Mandy and Sandy have. Like, their job duties are vast. It's true. They, they, they greet people on the casino floor. Uh, they pour coffee. They serve pie. Uh, they complain about traffic. Uh, anyway, so so Brad comes to the to the counter to uh, try to have some breakfast himself. Uh, a simple breakfast of cereal with milk, orange juice, and coffee. The cereal is what raisin bran crunch and, raisin uh, bran crunch raisin bran crunch. The Kellogg's lo- label, you know, figuring prominently. So Brad's had this dream about killing that Douglas Jones fuck. He hates him so bad. He just hates, he just keep had a dream all night. He couldn't sleep because he was dreaming about killing Douglas Jones that he hates so much. And and Rodney, you know, wants to know if Brad can wait three hours because it's, you know, 2.23 p.m. Uh, before the 5.30 appointment. And, you know, Brad, Jim Belushi says, he pushed away the cereal. I can't eat this. We go back to Lucky 7. Uh, basically, we hear the guitar chord that usually that we we saw when Dougie Jones 
got his information about which slot machine to use. And this time, it's uh, we see Mike or Philip Gerard beckoning Dougie in 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 the red room. And but we see the scene of him in the red room beckoning to Dougie to come towards him. But it's actually. A, a coffee shop or cafe called Zymon, spelled S-Z-Y-M-O-N, apostrophe S. And the Z is bold-faced, and I think the O looks like a cherry pie. So he goes in there, and he comes out with a box as uh, Bushnell leads Dougie to the limousine that's going to take him to the missions. Can I so say one I, thing I, here? I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think... It's an idea I have for, for Lynch Frost Productions. They should cut up with some sort of Pokemon-style game where you track sort of like the one-armed man and the kind of uh, yes. red room icon sort of in real life <laughs> through the world and and get prizes, you know, uh, and jackpots. Uh, I think it would be this, – this is my idea for – Getting some more revenue uh, after Twin Peaks Return is over because Absolutely. Like, that's right. You, you turn on your camera and like you, when you put your your phone's camera viewfinder on the cafe, then you see the one arm beckoning, beckoning to you. Yes, yeah, beckoning you to come inside. Yeah, no, that's that's a brilliant idea. Um, that is absolutely the greatest idea ever. I love it that. It is great. Right. But what happens when I implicate my friend in an arson and insurance scheme and get killed by gangsters for it because the your app soul put a yellow utterly, light over them? Your soul is utterly annihilated. Game over. Right. Just saying it's, it's a lot <laughs> yeah, of liability for Showtime it. and uh, Frost and Lynch to be taking on. Well, yeah, but, but they took out secondary <laughs> insurance. They're covered. They're, <laughs> they they're placed good. a bet on me getting killed by their app. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, the the thing that I noticed, because this is all I'm noticing on Twin Peaks anymore, is when he's walking across the lobby, you see three pieces of furniture in the foreground. One's red, one's yellow, one's green. It is all over this episode that the balance is being restored. And, and Ken, you know, take heart. The Robins are right. returning. Yeah. So what I noticed is that the Z in the logo for Zymons is bolded out, which recalled to me the cups uh, that held the lattes that Tracy took from work to visit Sam in the glass box room. Uh, I think that this is the same retail outlet. They're selling coffee and pies in New York and Las Vegas and who knows where else. And I believe that this means that Tracy may have been an emissary or investigator sent by the White Lodge. Um, nice. that may be kind of a stretch, but I, I do think that he got his cherry pie from the same place that Tracy got her lattes. It's a good catch. It's a really good catch. And she, and she worked there, right? I mean, it wasn't just that she, that she uh, shopped there or, or went and bought things. I mean, she, she worked as a barista or something at this place, right? That was the implication I got. That, that seemed to be her mutual yeah. understanding, but both, both Tracy and Sam made reference to her working there. So uh, finally, Bushnell pulls up uh, or brings Dougie over to the uh, to the limo and says, "You know, knock him dead." And then Dougie starts rubbing his face, and which evokes uh, bad C, uh, Mister C, uh, rubbing the face of that guy who likes spaghetti in front of the storage space. Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought of that too, and particularly since he says "dead" while he's doing it. And, and Jr., you may be right, Ken, and I thought that that uh, he killed Jack off screen, but you may be right. The 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 you know jowl rub may in fact be how he killed him, which is really creepy. I think it's like a gentler version of whatever the woodsman did to Bill Mitchell that 
Right. Yeah. I, I mean, who knows? But so, and then but basically they drive away. Uh, the, the limo driver tells Bushnell that they're going to Santino's. Well, Bushnell tells Dougie he's going to love it. Uh, the limo driver recognized Dougie by saying, he points at him and says, Red Door. Uh, so this is the guy that dropped him off at Janie E's house that night after he uh, won all the money when he was Mr. Jackpots. Yeah, when when uh, he gets in, as you said, JR, the limo driver says red door, and then Dougie looks around to try and see it, but of course he can't see it because the red door isn't there. And in fact, uh, earlier we heard when Lucy was transferring the call from the log lady into Hawk, she mentioned about, you know, why do Andy and I need a chair? We're never home, uh, as though they have chosen to cancel this order of the red chair. So these things that are red that we're expecting to show up aren't there. The the things that are malevolent, the the things that are sinister are starting to disappear and, and starting to be replaced by green. Because when uh, he says that red door, you see Dougie looking around. Well, about dead center of your screen, looking out the back window of the limo, uh, there's a green dot of light out the out the back window. And then when you go back uh, the and see Coop's point of view, looking at the driver, you can see the green numerals on the dashboard clock uh, in the front. Then the car takes off down the strip. It goes under traffic light after traffic light. They're all green. Goes past palm tree after palm tree. They're all green. And and we're distinctly color scheme wise moving out of the bad and into the good as as the bright like city's gonna set Dale's soul set Dale's soul on fire yeah that's really good and uh i woke up with uh viva las vegas in my head this morning of course because of the sean colvin cover of it that's playing as they drive uh on down the strip and and out of town to what is supposed to be santino restaurant and ends up being some desert scene homage to seven but um, thinking about the song got me to thinking about why so much of this season is set in Las Vegas and what would interest David Lynch about Las Vegas in context of his other works. There was a nice piece on an NPR page, I think WBUR.org, had a piece about how this 18-hour work is really a summation of all of Lynch's career, which is a lot of what we talk about on this show. So I was thinking about ways in which... David Lynch's work in general connects to Las Vegas, and I came up with a few. Uh, obviously, there's the lyrics to the song specifically, right? Like you, Kyle, I connected the Set My Soul on Fire lyric to the, you know, your soul being annihilated if you approach the Black Lodge with imperfect courage. And like you were saying earlier, fire can be good or fire can be bad in this world. And Elvis's Set My Soul on Fire is the good kind, of course. Uh, and of course, that song also uses right. the one arm Bandits nickname for slot machines, which uh, we talked about last week. I think JR noted that in context of uh, one-armed men, of course. And Vegas uh, in the song is described by Elvis as turning day into nighttime, turning night into daytime. If you see it once, you'll never be the same again, which almost feels like a Black Lodge, White Lodge kind of a thing. The notion that people are forever changed by seeing these places uh, like um, Gordon Cole seems to be now with his hand twitching and like uh, this consciousness that emerged from the other place and became now Cooper slash Dougie Jones. Right. Um, and then, of course, Vegas, nobody has more neon than Las Vegas, which produces that kind of an electric hum that is underlying all of the sounds in this series and is tied directly into the supernatural. Of course, there's all the stuff we've talked about with the proximity to nuclear testing and aliens in Las Vegas. But the thing that I was interested in exploring most in this episode is the way that 
Vegas itself is about nostalgia for Las Vegas now. That so much of Las Vegas, and particularly downtown Las Vegas, trades on this idea of how we conceive of the origins of Vegas. Like benevolent gangsters setting up this playground in the uh, desert somewhere. And there's, of course, all kinds of media dedicated to showing how violent and seamy and, and awful the whole history of Vegas really is. But if you're in downtown Las Vegas particularly, as opposed to on the Strip, they really want to sell you this fantasy that looks a lot like the scenes that we're about to get in the Santino restaurant with uh, the Mitchums and with with Dougie. So um, I thought that was that was interesting, the way that Vegas seems to be, or that Lynch seems to be kind of loving uh, that stereotype or playing in it while gently critiquing it the same way he does the notions that we have about suburbia or suburban America, first in 1989 and now 2017. Of course, the other half of Las Vegas is the strip area Las Vegas, which is just a series of like simulations or simulacra of other places. There's fake Egypt and fake New York and fake Monte Carlo and fake Venice and fake Rome. And the idea is, you know, like uh, a doppelganger designed for a purpose, these are all created to distract you from what's really going on. They're there to create the sensation you don't need to actually go to these places when you have the replica in front of you. Um, and uh, and finally, I think that Lynch really just cares about Las Vegas because Las Vegas is the most straightforwardly American place. And uh, Kyle, I think you pulled up a really good uh, Tom Wolfe quote about that. Yeah, uh, and when when I was seeing your your notes about uh, all of the points you just made, I, I, it reminded me of something I'd read, and so I looked it up. And uh, what what Tom Wolfe wrote about it was, uh, and, and I'm quoting from him here: "I call Las Vegas the Versailles of America." And for specific reasons, Las Vegas happened to be created after the war with war money by gangsters. They built it in an isolated spot, Las Vegas, out in the desert, just like Louis XIV, the Sun King, who purposely went outside of Paris into the countryside to create a fantastic Baroque environment to celebrate his rule. It is no accident that Las Vegas and Versailles are the only two architecturally uniform cities in Western history, unquote. And, and of course, you get all this resonance from that, you know, talking about after the war. Well, that's, of course, the Second World War, the same war that ended because of the Trinity test that we saw in Episode 8. It's out in the desert. The desert's the site of that test where Bob emerged, uh, where Parsons uh, sought to break the boundaries between the worlds in, in the secret history of Twin Peaks. And then finally, you've got the idea of the Sun King, and that ties into so much uh, of what the Log Lady was talking about last week and what Jeff was alluding to earlier. You know, the sun is the star that drives the darkness from the sky. And when she's asking that question about, you know, the stars and the lights going out and the darkness falling, and, and the sun is the thing that, uh, obviously, uh, on a literal level, chases that away for us on a day-to-day basis. So all that all that really hit me when I was, you know, reading your notes, Ken, on what uh, what it made you think of. So it just kind of cool all the, all the connections that tie yeah, together. Yeah, and of course, that sun thing ties right back into that lyric from Viva Las Vegas about turning day into night and, and vice versa, yeah. right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's self-evident to people that America that Las Vegas is America on steroids, including to Las Vegas. There's an America themed restaurant in the middle of New York, New York casino in Las Vegas, right? So it's all just a, you know, recursion. But um, 
there's this art forum article that we linked to on our Facebook page after episode eight that talked about Lynch and his focus specifically on America. And it had the quote, maybe the best thing about Lynch is his absolute refusal to leave America. When he is not on earth, he is still in America. When he is dreaming, he is still in America. And that was, uh, I thought, a really good synopsis of the value of Las Vegas as this quintessentially American thing to uh, Lynch and his idea of what this country is about. Well, somewhere outside of Vegas, the Mitchums are waiting for Dougie. Brad is still upset, but now it's almost as if he really doesn't want to kill Dougie. He's been tortured by his dream. Uh, in the dream, something happened, and one of those things is that uh, Rodney's cut was completely healed. Uh, and it turns out they pull off his bandage, and Rodney's cut has been completely healed, just as it was in the dream. His candy cut. That's right. His candy cut, right. <laughs> yeah, it, the, the, the cool thing to me was Brad saying that he couldn't remember the rest of his dream because, wait a minute, let me get this straight. We got a guy in Twin Peaks who has a disturbing prophetic dream. He tells his closest professional colleague about it over breakfast. He forgets a critical detail, and then he starts to see bits of it coming true in real life. Gee, where have we heard that before? And, and, and you know, we had Mike earlier uh steering him toward the the place where he presumably bought the pie uh and so i mean i think it's pretty clear mike sent a message to brad uh in the dream and it's the interpretation of the dream that saves dale cooper's life and and that's just to me the greatest thing ever the idea that somebody got a dream from the white lodge and that's what kept dale cooper from dying and that's just beautiful and and to give credit here uh there's a a loyal Rapton podcast listener joe Grabowski, who helpfully pointed out on the show's Facebook page that the extra loss the Mitchums keep blaming on Dougie, which comes up again in this scene, that that's probably the money that the old lady won from the jackpots that Dougie gave away. And I, I think more and more, I think that's right. Especially given that we're going to see her. That may have been bugging only me, but still. Yeah, I think we're I think we're going to see that lady uh, at Centina's later. But before that, the Mitchums get out of their black car. Uh, Dougie arrives in the white limo that had been sent for him. The driver sort of shuffles Dougie over, and Dougie stands holding his box. But then at this point, Brad is concerned. He's really upset because Dougie's holding a box, and in his dream he was holding a box. And he says that if this one certain thing, one certain thing from his dream is there in that box, then that means that Dougie's on their side and that they can't kill him. His brother asks him what it is. He whispers it to him. We don't get to see what it is. And then he approaches Dougie as his brother is holding the gun pointed to kill Dougie. And, of course, we're all – I think literally, is it true, all of us were thinking about the movie Seven, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I thought Major Briggs's head yep. was in the box. Yeah, I thought that that was a possibility, that it could be Major Briggs's head in the box. But, no, it's not his head in the box. It's a cherry pie, which is what was in his dream. Uh, and and the, the sort of, like, dance – uh, that happens as uh, they find out that he's got the cherry pie, and so they they ended up searching him. And in the course of searching Dougie's person, they found the check that's addressed to them, and they see that they got their thirty million dollars. And uh, this the expression on Jim Belushi's face is uh, yes. unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so I, good. I retract my previous statement. 
the fact that it's a cherry pie that that replaces the previous thing as the greatest thing ever. And I, I believe that Mike is writing the poem to counteract the woodsman poem from our radio station in New Mexico. And I, I think the way the first stanza goes is wake up, don't die, have a slice of cherry pie where it goes from there. I'm going to leave to Jeff yeah. to figure out, but I think that's how it starts. <clears throat> I feel like cherry pie is sort of like reverse Garmin Bozia in some way, you know, in the, the, the kind of. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's great. Now, Dougie's been completely redeemed in the eye of the Mitchums. Uh, and our next scene is at what we assume is the restaurant Santino's, uh, where they've decided to finally take him. Uh, Dougie is sitting at a table uh, with the Mitchum brothers, and they're drinking some champagne. Ken, is this time for your beverage corner? So just briefly, they are drinking champagne out of coupes, which are the little sort of Marie Antoinette-shaped glasses uh, that you associate with drinking champagne back in, say, the 20s and 30s. People talk about, you know, the gay old times of flappers and what have you, and you think of champagne flowing. Leonardo DiCaprio and the Great Gatsby, that sort of thing. You think of champagne flowing through these glasses. They're the types you stack up into pyramids uh, to pour champagne down and all of that. And they've got come back in fashion now for serving champagne out of but they're actually not a very good glass to drink champagne out of. You should really drink champagne out of a white wine glass or out of a glass with a similar kind of uh, width to it so that you can actually appreciate the aromas. The flute that everybody used um, until recently was just designed to show off the bubbles. And uh, the coupe was very popular in a time when sweet, desserty sort of champagne was really popular. So they seem to be drinking something nice and reasonably expensive, though there's no product placement and you can't see the label at the scene in Santino. So my surmise is that they would be better off with a different glass. But of course, the coupe is a nod to the sort of nostalgia for the old Las Vegas that this restaurant and this scene and uh, this part of Las Vegas represents to me. And this, so in other words, you're worried about coops. <laughs> First of all, that's great. Second of all, this has been Ken's Beverage Corner. Great. Sorry, didn't mean to, didn't mean to step no, on your ending. It was there. my fault. <laughs> great. And so uh, there's not much left. To, well, let's try to tie this up quickly. Uh, uh, the next thing that happens is that Laura's theme, or something that sounds like Laura's theme, is being played by the piano player at the restaurant. Everything stops. Uh, Dougie, he kind of his his jaw sharpens. He turns and he's clearly moved by the music. Uh, it does look like Coop is starting to emerge. Uh, then uh, a lady in a fancy dress arrives and it turns out that uh, she is there and she wants to embrace him and thank him for as Mr. Jackbox for changing her life uh, because now she has a, a dog, a house, her son from Denver's back, all because of what he did. And she makes this point to says to the Mitchum brothers that, that this is a very special man uh, that they have, that they're, they, that they're lucky to be there with him or something to that effect. The candy Mandy and Sandy shows up. Candy is like acting very strange, uh, responsive only about 20% of the time uh, when she finally serves uh, Dougie, another piece of pie. And uh, Rodney says that it's damn good pie. And Dougie says, damn good. And we're all excited to see Coop start to reemerge. And that's it. Episode 11, guys. Really enjoyed it. Lots could to I talk s- about. Could I have, say, one kind of final thing? Uh, I've thought about bringing it up earlier, you know, kind of throughout our discussion. But I sort of saw this episode in an interesting way at different times, kind of being involved with the phenomenon of peak TV. Um, and uh, so much of which owes 
uh, a lot to Twin Peaks and probably wouldn't have been possible without uh, the precedence of, of Twin Peaks. But uh, places I saw this at work, uh, we talked about the vortex, the spiral in the sky. That was very much along the lines of what Rust Cole saw uh, a couple of times in True Detective uh, season one. Um, I just, I also kind of thought that the, um, you know, the Mitchum brothers themselves kind of seem, especially as we get more and more development of their characters, like they could be uh, characters from uh, The Sopranos. Um, the scene where we, we talked about the, you know, the seven. Uh, you know, uh, the way in which, you know, the, the, the meeting in the desert and the, the box plays off the end of David Fincher seven. I also kind of felt like that you could take the footage of, you know, them going to meet out in the middle of the desert. That could be almost any scene meeting between gangsters and breaking bad or better call Saul. And then we end up in a bar that's exactly like the types of bars we see Don Draper uh, drinking at in, in Mad Men. So whether or not all those yeah. were supposed to be in this episode yeah. or not, I just kind of kept thinking uh, about all these other different TV shows, which in, in one way or another um, owed some of their DNA to, to Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks kind of, you know, uh, checking the boxes, paying these homages uh, to them throughout this episode. So, yeah. Well, especially when you think about the ad campaign that Showtime ran, right? Before the premiere, they had Before Men Were Mad, right. Before Bad Broke, Before the Dead Walked, whatever, whatever. So, um, yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. They should have gone with the tagline, it's not peak TV, it's peaks TV. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, and the thing that, that I kept seeing throughout uh, the way Jeff was seeing this was, you know, you've got black and white lodges. We got black and white limos. We got them uh, wearing this uh, old time uh, black and white clothing. And the episode even ends with the music being played on an instrument with black and white keys. One of the few times that we're outside of, of, uh, of the roadhouse. So, again, we're seeing things come back into balance and we're seeing the setting up of this uh, this ultimate showdown between between good and evil and uh you know fortunately we got cooper coming back here uh little by little i'm i'm beginning to think we're not truly going to see original recipe federal bureau of investigation special agent dale bartholomew cooper uh until episode 17 at the earliest and maybe not until the last 10 minutes of episode 18 but it's coming, and and uh, this to me, I, I thought this was one of the best episodes so far. I don't know where I'd rank it overall, but yeah, I I'd agree it. with you. And I, I also, you know, uh, one of the things this episode proved to me again was the utter and complete unpredictability of Twin Peaks: The Return. You know, I, I would never have thought that we would have this. I, I thought Coop was or Dougie Coop, you know, w- w- was going to his doom, and then this sort of weird reconciliation, you know, and kind of like buddy comedy that we get at the end between the Mitchum brothers. Right. And then just the, you know, the, I, 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 I loved how this episode just took off. It was all dread and violence. And then it sort of took this unpredictable turn. And, and the whole sequence with, you know, Gordon and the vortex was up there with, with, uh, and the woodsman was up there with, with me, some of the, the, the greatest things uh, so far this season. So yeah, this is probably my favorite episode since uh, episode eight. Yeah, I mean, it's a fun and layered episode that has a lot of really cool moments in it. I'm just trying to live in the moment of where this show is and not think about where Kyle is predicting it will sort of head, just in case we don't end up getting any of the Dale Cooper that I really want or any of the Audrey Horn that I really, right, really want. Sure. Right. So it just feels like with, with any show that has an end time attached to it, you get into countdown mode. So I'm already like, well, I only have seven hours left. What's going to be in those seven hours that I might want? And if the answer isn't more of this, then you're... <laughs> then you're probably in trouble at this point, right? <laughs> right. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think this is a great episode. I think that we're going to see uh, things turn darker next week. Uh, we're going towards fire. Um, and it, we're going to see Jackrabbit's Palace. Jackrabbit's Palace. I think we're going to see some bad coop. Uh, I hope we see that fucker Ray and what his connection is uh, to Jeffries or pseudo Jeffries or whoever. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was a great episode. Well, thanks everybody uh, for listening this week. Uh, we love your feedback. We enjoy getting it. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, everybody have a great week and we will see you next week at Wrapped in Podcast. Thanks.
We'll be right back.